I was serving a church years ago, and we had invited a well-known uh, evangelist to come and preach a one-day revival. That was a Sunday morning and a Sunday uh, evening service. And at the end of the morning service, uh, at the invitation, he made this statement. He said, if you are here this morning and you're 99% sure that you're saved, then you're 100% lost. And when he gave the invitation, we had nearly 80 adults come forward at that invitation and profess that they needed to place their faith in Jesus Christ. We were all blown away, all amazed. We didn't really know what to make of it. Uh, we were just blown away. We hadn't seen anything like it. Well, several weeks later, I was actually preaching at a youth event up in Virginia at a buddy's church of mine. And I had preached two or three sessions, two or three sermons, and I realized very quickly that this wasn't going well. And as a speaker, you can kind of Get, you kind of know when things are not going well. Like, one, when everybody looks completely disinterested in what you're saying, that's one sign. Another is many of them were listening with their eyes closed. In other words, they were sleeping. That's another way of knowing. I know that from here, from some of you. Uh, and, and then there are just times where they seem to be more interested in what they're saying with their buddy next to them than anything that I could be saying from the pulpit. And so I, I would love to be able to say, out of great compassion and fear, for the souls of those that were listening to me, I, well, it wasn't, that really wasn't the motivation. I was just frustrated with every last one of them. So in frustration, I repeated the exact same phrase that I had heard from that evangelist uh, just a few weeks before. I said, look, young people, listen up. I'm telling you right now, if you're 99% sure that you're saved, you're 100% lost. And 46 out of 48 kids at the camp walked the aisle to give their life to Christ. Now, you would think maybe I would be rejoicing, but I had a funny suspicion that something was very, very wrong with all of this. Now, could God do it? Yes, God could do it. God could certainly save large numbers of people at one sermon. We see that happen in the beginning of Acts and doing that. Uh, but, but when I say that there was something wrong, I don't mean there was something wrong and that God can't do that. I mean that there were, must have been something wrong in that statement that this man made and I ended up repeating. And the problem with it is it assumes or suggests or even demands that a true believer in Jesus Christ can't ever doubt. In fact, it's suggesting that if you doubt, that is clear evidence that you have never been born again. And the problem with that is that's just not what the Bible teaches at all. In fact, there are two books that are written for particular people who are doubting in their faith. faith. The first, John or first John, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, John wrote this, I, wrote, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He's writing to Christians, born-again believers. But then he adds this, that you may know that you have eternal life. He was writing to people who he had heard their profession of faith. He had been with them. He had seen the fruit of repentance in their life. He knew they were born again. They were just doubting their own faith. And he says, I'm writing these things to encourage you in that faith so that you may know. Well, you know, the book of Luke is very similar to 1 John in that it was written in a very similar way. We know that he is writing to a man by the name of Theophilus. And as he's writing to him, from all that we can tell, he was a believer in Christ, even though we know very little about him. But there, even in the beginning of Luke, we read this. He says that he was writing to Theophilus for this reason, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So here's another believer with doubt. 
And I don't believe that the Bible teaches if you are 99% sure you are 100% lost. If that's the case, then every one of us from time to time are probably lost for sure. Because from time to time, we all experience some kind of doubt. Maybe in Christ, maybe in the gospel, maybe the truth claims of the Bible. It's hard to talk about, but I think it's true. And what we find here in this particular passage, before we take the Lord's Supper this morning, is we, we see an unlikely doubter, a man by the name of John the Baptist. And what we find is that Jesus sought to ease those doubts. So we're going to do two things this morning very quickly. First thing we want to do is we want to look at the causes of doubt. Not all the causes, but the causes of doubt that the Bible shows us here in this text. And then at the end of that, we want to look at the cure for doubt. The cure for doubt. So the cause and the cure. Let's look, first of all, beginning with the, uh, the causes of doubt. Picking up in verse 18, follow along if you will. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying... Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, uh, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? Now, we have to go back to Luke chapter 3 to really kind of understand this context. Back in Luke chapter 3, remember, Jesus' public ministry began when he was baptized by John the Baptist out in the wilderness. So as soon as he's baptized, he begins that three-year public ministry. Well, in the very beginning of that public ministry, somewhere, we don't know exactly when, but John is arrested by King Herod. And we're told in chapter 3 and verse 19 that he was arrested because of his public rebuke of Herod, because of all the wicked and evil things he was doing, including the taking of his brother's wife as his own and so he's in prison during this time. And while he's in prison, he has his disciples go back and before, forth between Jesus and himself. They go to Jesus. They see the miracles that Jesus is performing. They hear the message, uh, the sermons that he is preaching. And then they come and they deliver that back to John. He listens to all they have to say. And somewhere along the line in that prison, he begins to doubt he begins to truly doubt, even though he's hearing all these amazing things, is Jesus truly the promised Savior of the world? Now this, if you've been following the story, this seems to be almost unbelievable, doesn't it? Especially because we've been learning about John since his childhood. In the very beginning of Luke, we read that when he was in his own mother's womb, if you remember this, that when he heard Mary, the, Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus' voice, he leaped in his mother's womb, indicating that Jesus, that, that she was the, the, the mother of the coming Messiah. Then when he was preaching in the wilderness, he, would pre he preached this. He said, look, he goes, you've come out to see me, but I'm telling you there is one to come after me that is much greater than me, the one to whom I am unworthy of even untying his sandals. And then when Jesus shows up, he goes, that's the one. That's the one that I've been talking about. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And then, and then if that wasn't enough, then it, when he baptizes Jesus and he comes up out of the water, the heavens above him part, and then the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And when it does, he hears an audible voice from heaven, the heavenly Father say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Here's my point. If anybody 
would probably be, that you would think on the planet would have no reason to doubt anything about Jesus and Jesus being the Messiah, it would be, the Messiah, not the Messiah, the Messiah, the Messiah, that it would be John the Baptist, right? And yet he doubted. So the question is, why did he doubt? We can speculate a lot of things, but let's try to stick with the text as much as we can. One could be very well just difficult circumstances, He's, he's in prison. He's been arrested. He's lost his freedom. He has no contact with his loved ones anymore. And he's on death row, which means every day that he wakes up, he's reminded of the fact that this might be the very last day that he lives. And so that is the very definition of stressful and difficult circumstances. And you and I can identify with this. Maybe not prison and death row. But we can identify that doubts often arise in the midst of our difficulties. That when things are not going our way or there's a sickness or there's problems within our life, that's when we have an opportunity to begin to doubt God himself. We begin to ask questions like, God, do you care? God, where are you in the midst of all this? God, can you help me? Are you even willing to be able to help me? So we get it. Doubt comes through difficult circumstances. And I think that could be a part of what's playing out here. But I think it's more than that, and I think more accurate to the context. I think it has more to do not just with this idea of, of difficult circumstances, but I think it's even more so about unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. See, John, he had heard all these things about Jesus. Everything that his disciples had seen him do. He saw the miracles. In other words, he saw him, he, he saw, they were there when, when he spoke and when he spoke a healing on the centurion's servant and, and when he raised the dead, the, the widow's dead son. He, he, he was aware of all his miracles. He was also aware of all the teachings that Jesus had had. So they would have come back and reported about all of the sermon, the sermon on the plane that we had unpacked for weeks. They had shared all that with John. But in the midst of that, he's sitting there going, yes, that's all the things that the Messiah should do, but that's not everything the Messiah should be doing. He's not doing everything the Messiah should be doing. What about his kingdom? What about the visible kingdom of the Messiah coming back, setting up a physical, tangible kingdom? And what about him, and here specifically, the judging of sinners and those who are oppressing God's people? Where is that Savior? Where is he out? And this was, this was a huge emphasis for, for um, John himself, and we see it throughout his preaching. For example, in John chapter 3 and verse 7, it says, he said, you brood of vipers, he warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Then in chapter 3 and verse 9, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then finally in chapter 3 and verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff will, be, will, will burn with unquenchable fire. Here's John's problem. Where's the wrath? Where's the ax? Where's the unquenchable fire? Where is your judgment on the sinful world? Because I'm not seeing any of it. All I know is if you're the Messiah and you're supposed to be judging those who are wicked, I got news for you. The wicked is still on the throne, and your servant is still in prison. So when he goes and he sends them to ask this question, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John, in essence, was expressing the fact that there was a level of disappointment in who Jesus was 
because he wasn't meeting all of his expectations. Let me ask you a tough, tough question. Have you ever been disappointed with Jesus? Man, I don't even know if I'm allowed to ask that question. It seems so bizarre and it seems so wrong to even ask it. When I was in my study and I, and I started typing that out, I go, Ooh, wait, wait, back that, wait, erase that. I don't even, am I gonna get struck dead for even saying something like this? And I certainly don't know if I wanna say it to a congregation of people. And the truth is, is that what I mean is, is there've been times in our life where we wanted something and desired something of God and he didn't end up giving it to us. And we would have thought that he did because he's a loving God, but for some reason he didn't do it. And we were just disappointed. Look, many of us, when we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we had some person, and I make sure I don't do this. It's why I don't think we see as many people quickly signing up for salvation is because we try to be clear about the gospel. But I know for me, I heard a lot of this. Hey, listen, Jesus will cure what ails you, man. Just come to Jesus and he's the cure for all your problems and all your difficulties. You just come to him and he's gonna make it all better. Fantastic. And for some, they came to faith and they came to legitimate faith in Christ because of the forgiveness of their sins. But the truth is they look back and there's a disappointment because all they do is see this Christian life and following of Christ and it has been hard and it has been difficult and there's been a great deal of suffering. And then they look, what makes it even worse is they look to somebody else who hates God wants nothing of God, doesn't want, he, he's not here on Sunday morning, he's out on a boat. And everything seems to be going well for him. But yet, why, when they hate God, we love God, and yet, this going, and so there's this idea of, maybe there's a little bit of disappointment. Now, here's the idea. We would almost never say that. But chances are that many of us have thought it from time to time inside of our hearts, inside of our minds. We just think to ourselves, Lord, why couldn't you have done all of these things? And if you are in that particular position, you are in good company. Jesus said of John the Baptist that there was no greater man ever born of woman than John. And that means if you doubted and he doubted, you have some similarities with the greatest man who had ever lived on the face of the earth. And so there was some doubt who entered in. And if you are doubting, let me just say a few things before we find out what the answer is. If you are doubting, not only are you in good company, you need to do, and I need to do exactly what John did. You need to take that concern to Christ. If Jesus is big enough for your sin to take on your sin, he is big enough to take on and hear and to listen to your disappointment. And he is big enough to listen to your doubts when things don't, look, If we don't go to him, where do we go? And when I say go to him, go to his word and seek his word, but I also mean go to his body, his physical body, his hands and feet, you and I. When we are struggling in the faith, what we don't need to do is sit away and draw away and and begin to be all by ourselves and just sit there with all of our doubts in our mind. What we need to do is we need to pursue Christ. That's exactly what John did. And we need to be there for each other. I don't know about you. I don't know what kind of church you grew up in, but the kind of church I grew up in, and I'm thankful for it, but it was the kind of church you didn't dare share your doubts. If you shared your doubts, I mean, people would look at you with great disapproval, basically looking at you, saying to yourself, hey, bro, this is not a place for people who doubt. This is the place for people who believe. Then where do you go when you doubt? Where do you go when you're struggling, when your faith is being twisted and, and marred and you're, you're, you're just barely holding on? Do you, do you go to the skeptic? Do you go to the secular unbelieving professor and go, hey, can you explain who Jesus was to me? 
No, we go to each other, the believers in Jesus Christ, turn to each other and just go, hey, look, I'm struggling. I don't know about this. Some of this stuff doesn't be able to make sense. This Mercy Hill needs to be a safe place for those who deal with doubts and struggles. And we need to be the place who go to Jesus to find those answers. So the first thing that we see is what are the causes of doubts? Two of the causes of doubts that the Bible tells us is number one, difficult circumstances. But number two, unmet expectations. We are expecting Jesus to do something. He fails to do it. And we find ourselves being what? Disappointed. And then doubt begins to shrink in. So here's the, here's the second thing. What, not only what causes doubt, but what is the cure then of doubt? Look at verse 21. Verse 21. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, in, in, the, poor have, the, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, when Jesus, when, when Jesus was asked the question by John, are you the one or is there another one to come? Are you the true Messiah, the true Savior of the world, or should we be looking for another? Jesus could have answered that in a whole lot of ways, right? First thing he could have do, done is, is rebuked him. He could have said, oh, you little faith. You have such little faith, John. Everything that I've shown you, everything that I've revealed to you, and you still don't believe. And he could have just, with that mm, parental disappointment look, Adam, I, I can't believe you're asking this. But he didn't. Why? Because he loved John. He didn't want to crush his faith. He wanted to build his faith. The other thing that he could have done, not only rebuked him, but he could have placated him. He sought to placate him, he, he, what he, in meaning that he could have given him exactly what he wanted. He could have sat back and he said, okay, John, look, I, I understand. I've been doing a lot of healing. I've been doing a lot of teaching. And the truth is, you want judgment? I'll, I'll give you judgment. Give me a second. I'm going to get my white horse. I'm going to come with my sword. And I'm going to enact judgment on all these, these sinners and what I'm going to do is the first thing I'm going to do is give you a uh, get out of jail card. I'm going to free you. He could have placated. He could have given him everything that he wanted to in order to be able to meet his expectations for the Messiah in order for him to actually believe. And, you know, there's been times in my own Christian life that I've kind of prayed that way where I've been meeting with somebody to say, hey, listen, we know these folks. They have a sick child. Would you go pray with them? I go and pray. They're not believers. And I pray with them, God, please heal this child. And I think to myself, God, if, if you would just heal them, if you just heal them, maybe certainly then they would believe in you then. And God chooses in his providence and sovereignty not to be able to heal that child. And there's been times I'm like, man, that would have been so good. Yet God has a completely different plan. But this isn't how God responds. Jesus doesn't respond with a rebuke. And he doesn't respond in the same way by, 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 by giving him exactly what he wants, by placating him at all. How does he respond instead? Instead, he responds by reminding by reminding him specifically of what he did and why he came. What he wants him to know here is what he does is he actually quotes that, that phrase that he says, go and tell him what you saw. And then he begins to talk about that paragraph. What he's actually doing is he's actually quoting Old Testament messianic prophecies that spoke of what the Messiah would do when he ended up coming. 
when he, when he, excuse me, when he ended up, when he came, sorry, grammar's messed up today, when, when he came. And so what we find is these particular prophecies go back to the book of Isaiah. He's actually quoting from three Isaiah prophecies. One is found in Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. Talking about the time of the Messianic age. He says in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 through 6, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute uh, sing for joy. And then finally, Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1, The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. All of these prophecies were suggesting and telling everybody who would come how they would know when the Messiah would come is because he would do these things. He would heal the sick. He would, he, would, he would give sight to the blind. He would raise the dead. He would do all of these things so that they know when somebody came doing all these things that, in fact, he was the Messiah. Jesus was sitting there going, bro, I've done all of these things. So he's assuring them he is the promised Messiah, but he's doing something else. He's showing him what the Messiah primarily came to do. All of the prophecies that are fulfilled here are all prophecies of mercy, not judgment. They're all acts of mercy. And in essence, what Jesus is trying to tell them here is when Jesus came and his first coming, his whole purpose was not primarily to come and to judge sinners, but rather was to save sinners before the impeding judgment. So he's letting him know, you're disappointed because judgment's not coming. You've missed it. You misunderstand it. My primary purpose is not to come to condemn the world, but that through Jesus Christ, the world would in fact be saved. Where did John go wrong on this? Well, you have to understand a little bit about prophets. I am one, so let me explain. Um, prophets, when, when God gave them visions of what would happen in the future, he didn't spell it out or write it out, and it wasn't like they, they it wasn't like a timeline. Okay, I want you to look at this timeline. Here's what happened this time, and then this is what happened here, and then this is what happened 600 or 6,000 years later. This is going to happen. It's not the way he laid it out. When they had these visions, it was a vision. It was like a movie playing in front of their mind, and they would have visions of this and that and that. So when these prophets would look at the coming Messiah and they would prophesy, they would begin to see a man who would heal the sick. He would see one who would be able to, to, to overthrow the oppressors. He would see the, the, the oppressed being liberated and healed. He, he, he would see then that wrath and that judgment pouring out in this one big kind of clump together. It, it's a little bit like um, if you've ever seen a mountain range. If you're driving for a while uh, up in South Carolina, a place that I hunt about once a year, just kind of go up with a buddy, don't see much, but you know we, we like to sit in the woods. And as we're out there, as we're out there, um, there is a hill that you're kind of up on, and at a distance, you see a mountain range, and it's beautiful. And this mountain range, it looks like all of these mountains are right there on top of each other, just like it's a whole clump of mountains. But when you drive closer to the mountains, what you find is it's not a big clump of mountains. It's actually a mountain here. Another mile away is another mountain, and you keep doing that, and some of the mountains you see from a distance are 50 miles away from each other, but they look like they're all they're kind of working simultaneously in the same exact spot. Well, this is what prophets like, what, like he would do. He would see a vision. This Messiah would come. 
He would heal, he'd be merciful, he would teach, he would heal the blind, and he would judge, and he would restore an actual physical kingdom here on earth. And so when he looks at all those things, he goes, these things are happening simultaneously at the same time. And what John didn't understand that Jesus is clarifying is he says, judgment is coming, but mercy first. Mercy first. Before Christ will ever judge, he wants to extend as much mercy as he possibly can. Now, this is a challenge for us as believers in Jesus Christ, because we know that when Jesus does come again, he will wipe away every tear, he will judge the living and the dead, he will cure every disease, and he will crush the wicked opposition. Amen? And there's a part to all of us that long for that, don't we? That long for God to take this upside down world and set it right. We, we are yearning inside. It's like all of creation is yearning to be rebirthed again. For the world to be made right at the coming of Jesus Christ. But what we also know is that, but until then, we must all understand there, there comes tears, disease, death, and injustice will remain. Why? Because we're in a time of mercy. The only way to keep sinful people doing sinful people is to bring final judgment on them and stop it altogether. But until that time, they will continue to be sinful. Sin will, sin will continue to have its way in this world. But at the same time, God is being merciful to allow these things, sinful things to happen. Why? Because every moment that goes by, he's giving more and more opportunity for the wicked to repent. And the problem is, is that when he comes and we want him to come, what happens? No more opportunity to repent. No more opportunity to turn. Your friends, my friends, your family, my family, that we're praying for for salvation. We want him to come so badly, but there's a part of us that sits there and goes, why? Because the sin, the, the world is so wicked, we just want it to end, stop. But yet at the same time as we're pleading with this, we understand there were droves of people who had not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ or even heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there was a, we're torn between these two things. God, we want you to come, but not yet. There needs to be more time. I, um, we, um, I, I, wanna, I wanna give an illustration concerning birthing a child because I've, I've birthed so many children myself. I feel like I'm a, an expert at it. Um, I'm not actually. My wife has, has birthed a few, as many of you have. And um, some of them were really easy. I don't know if all yours were the same. Ours were like completely different. Um, like one of ours was super easy. It's like my wife and I, I think I mentioned this one day. We, we kind of went in. Uh, we showed up. She kind of walked in the parking lot a little bit. From the time that she, uh, we checked in to the time that the baby was actually born was 15 minutes. From the time we walked in, out. And what happened is before I was listening to a Gator game, and then, and then with 15 minutes, and then when she was done, I, I went and started listening to the rest of the Gator game. It was, it was kind of neat. I actually, it kind of happened over, uh, over halftime. So it kind of, I mean, it was kind of nice, worked out really well. Um, then there were other births that we had, like with other kids, like our firstborn, Caden, uh, um, like 36 hours, right? And uh, 36 hours, I mean, that was like foreshadowing, stubborn child in birth. Sorry, just kidding. And uh, so, so, so we, we understood that something was going on. And, and I, remember, I remember, you look back like when you're younger and you're like, I want to punch myself in the face. And there, I remember telling my wife after 36 hours going, man, you got to get this baby out. I'm exhausted. <laughs> just really, 
really making me tired watching you go through all this. <laughs> and then one of our children, uh, um, Adelaide, um, she was the most eventful one. And I don't know if he had an eventful birth, but she was an eventful one. And what happened with her was the fact that they found when she was kind of hooked up in the bed that there was an irregularity in her breathing, in her heart, or actually in her heart rate. And so whenever Larissa would have a contraction, you'd hear that heart rate go boom, 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 and really slow down. So the doctors came in and tried to figure out what was going on. And they somehow, I don't know how they do this, but somehow they figure out that what had happened was the umbilical cord was wrapped twice around her abdomen and once around her neck. So every time that there was a contraction, it was, it was choking her out in essence. And so they were trying to make sure, they were trying to work on her to make sure that she, she didn't push and, and, and she had to get her breathing right because the baby really needed some deep breaths from mom to make sure she could get all the oxygen she possibly could. And uh, to be honest with you, I probably wasn't, it probably wasn't my best time, all right? I wasn't shining. I should have been born back in the 50s where the dads had to stay outside, right, handing out cigars. I would have been, I would have been completely fine with that, by the way. And, uh, and we were in there, and, 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 and we had a, a dear friend of ours here from the church. Many of you know her, Joyce Peterson, was actually there at the birth. And, um, and she went over to Larissa, and she grabbed her hand, and she goes, you need to listen to me. Look at me. Look at me. Your baby is in danger. You need to, I, we know it's painful. We know it's hard. You need to concentrate for this baby. Now, when she did that, almost immediately, her breathing became more disciplined. You could tell that there was, she took on kind of this disciplined look, this, I need to get this done. I need to do this for the baby. When she said that, she didn't take one bit of pain or anxiety out of Larissa at all at that moment. It was still all there. But what was there is her understanding that suffering was necessary for someone else to be born. And for us, we're believers in Christ. Oftentimes we are so disappointed in God because he has not met our expectations. Expectations, by the way, in which he never promised to begin with at his first coming. And secondly is that we're putting on him and we're disappointed and really our, our disappointment is in our own theology. But what makes suffering right now more bearable for whatever you're going through is the fact that God's, you sit there and say, where is your grace? Where is your mercy? The mercy is found in God's holding off from coming and sending his son a second time. Two scripture passages that come to mind, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 God is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If he is long-suffering, then we too must be long-suffering in a sinful world in which we live. Number two, Romans 8, verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. That is what comforts us and help us to keep going and keep moving is because whatever we suffer here is not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us one day in Christ. But also, there's an encouragement here that the reason that we can continue is that we consider the sufferings of this present time not to be worthy of the suffering that those who are outside of Christ will experience when it's all said and done and Christ comes in the final judgment. And where do we get this type of desire and willingness to suffer for the life of others? 
Jesus Christ. The ultimate picture of Jesus Christ, of being beaten on the cross to a bloody pulp and taking on the sins of sinners, of you and I, and even more so, allowing the very wrath of God that was meant for you and I to be able to pour out on him. And that could be a reality for you if you'd repent of your sin, recognize that you've blown it, that you've sinned, that you've gone far away from God, that you've decided to live your life the way that you want to rather in submission to the creator of God. And if you repent from that and say, I can't do anything to to earn my salvation, I can't do anything, Lord, to, to make myself right before you, if that is where you are, you've come to the right place, the place of salvation. Say, God, I trust you. Forgive me a sinner. I trust what you've done for me in your death, burial, and resurrection, and I'll give you life. He'll give you life. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning, and we thank you, Lord, for the time that we've had together. Thank you for the power of your word. I thank you, dear Jesus, that you give us an opportunity every single week to come and hear the word together as a body. We can study it on, on our own, but God, there's something unique about coming together as a body of Christ. Now, Lord Jesus, I pray that this will be a wonderful time of response. Some will get saved. Some eyes will be opened up to understand a little bit better about disappointing, having Jesus disappoint them. But it's not that Jesus is disappointed, it's that we have disappointed ourselves for misunderstanding of why he came and what he will ultimately do. God, for many of us who were even in the midst of some type of suffering in their life, let us persevere knowing that it is actually your mercy and grace to a lost and dying world. God, let us place our faith in you. In your precious name we pray, amen. You may stand together. I'm gonna be down here. I'd love to talk with you. If you wanna know more about Christ, if you wanna know what it means to be saved, I wanna share that with you. If you need prayer, just come at this time, but let's do business with the Lord.